0: Every year around this time, the Oxford Languages, which is the publishers of the Oxford English Dictionary, chooses a word or expression that captures some of the mood of the year in linguistic form. It's a word that's gotten a significant amount of traction that year. It usually comes onto the national consciousness by being used more and more regularly. So like in 2013, the word was selfie. Last year, 2019, it was climate emergency. And then came 2020, a year where with really too many words that have come into our collective consciousness this year to really encapsulate with only one. So this year, the folks at Oxford Languages didn't choose one word. Instead, they wrote a whole report highlighting dozens of words that have been a part of our collective lexicon this year. They titled the report with one of those words that has been used so many times in so many ways, it's become a bit cliche. 2020, the words of an unprecedented year. Some of the words that Oxford folks noted have existed for decades, but only recently have kind of moved from like relatively obscure medical conversations to being commonly understood and used by the general public. Words like coronavirus social distancing, or PPE. Then there are the words that have been created or popularized to describe phenomena that have become a part of this whole pandemic reality. Words like Zoom bombing, or social bubbles, many others. I'm not going to go through them all. But I did want to reflect a bit today on one of the newer words that has emerged this year, It's a word that describes a practice I imagine a lot of us have actually engaged in this year, even if we weren't giving the practice, you know, this catchy name, doom scrolling. The people at Oxford define doom scrolling as the action of compulsively scrolling through social media or news feeds, which relate bad news. And no wonder this has become a thing this year, right? Not only have we been stuck at home often relating to the outside world through our phones or our computers, but there's been a lot of scary news to consume this year. Not just COVID, but news of police brutality, news of unrest over racial justice demonstrations, of of wildfires and other climate-related disasters. Um, Of course, there was like the whole election thing, concerns about democracy being torn apart altogether. It's been easy. To get sucked down the rabbit hole of bad news this year. But that habit of doom scrolling hasn't actually been very good for our health and well being, particularly our mental health. Dr. Vivek Murthy, who's the physician who was the Surgeon General under President Obama, has done a lot of work in the field of studying loneliness and its impact on our personal health. And he's been warning folks about practices like doom scrolling for months now. It's the path of least resistance to keep consuming passively through social media, he told a reporter for the New York Times earlier this year. You have to pull yourself out of that, he says. It's not just disengaging, but also dealing with the impact that has on your mindset, which often lasts for hours. Can any of us relate? Well, today is the first Sunday of the season called Advent, this traditional four-week period in the church calendar that leads up to Christmas. Now, the term Advent comes from the Latin adventus, meaning coming, so the coming of Christ that's honored at Christmas. And in this unprecedented year, I imagine different ones of us might have different responses to this season arriving. Some of us may be more ready than ever for some tinsel and some candy canes and the jolly merriment of the Christmas season. Perhaps we started listening to Christmas music months ago. For us, this season might feel just like a helpful break from all the doom scrolling, a chance to think about something cheery for a while. And while that could be fruitful, there's also potentially a concern that engaging the season is simply a distraction from the hard even maybe a denial of our present reality, can also be problematic, particularly when it's time to put away the Christmas tree and we find ourselves perhaps more lonely and desperate than before, as no gifts we gave or received were able to actually tend to the deeper longings of our spirit. Others of us might feel like this season is just a painful reminder of how much has been lost, Maybe we don't feel in the mood at all. All we can be, uh, pay attention to is how far we are from where we want to be. How much there is to grieve. So simply going through the holiday motions feels dissonant. Like salt in our emotional wounds. The good news is, I think Advent actually provides a path forward for, for you wherever you are right now. This year, as part of our Advent offerings, like Katie mentioned, we're inviting folks to read a book on Advent by scholar Amy Jill Levine called Light of the World. And what's interesting, I think particularly about this particular book is that Amy Jill Levine does not identify as a Christian. She is an Orthodox Jewish woman um, who also is a biblical scholar, a New Testament scholar. She teaches at Vanderbilt University. And so holding that, those kind of dual identities as a biblical scholar and not identifying as a Christian, but as, as, a, as a woman who's Jewish, I think brings a fresh perspective on to the stories of the season so for anyone who'd appreciate just a, a fresh take on Advent from a non-traditional source I, I echo Katie's um, affirmation of the book but her book has four chapters and they're intended to be read one each week throughout the four weeks of Advent and one of the titles of this chapter encapsulates what I think the whole season of Advent is really intended to be about She calls the third chapter, uh, the journey to joy. And that's why we've kind of been inspired by that title um, to name our whole teaching series, this Advent, the journey to joy. For me, this phrase is a reminder that true joy, isn't something we simply arrive at. We don't just wake up overnight and experience it. Joy is a journey we engage. Joy is not the same as that superficial, sugar-high happiness. It often means finding solace even in the midst of great challenge. So over the next four weeks, this is the journey we're going to be inviting you to take with us, with the hopes that wherever you find yourself at the end of this unprecedented year, together we can travel forward to places of renewed connection with one another, Connection with a God who comes to be present with us and, and to the joy, a journey to the joy that all of us, I think all of our anxious, lonely hearts are longing for. So what does the journey entail? Throughout the next four weeks, our staff's going to be leading us into four reflections, each with their own invitation, their own step in the journey, you might say. My hope is that each week we can give you, you know, kind of an invitation, a practice to engage that week to make meaning of this Advent journey and allow it to be more than just a superficial celebration. As a guide for this journey, our teaching team will be looking to the historic texts of the Christian lectionary. For those of you who aren't familiar with what that even is, the lectionary is a sort of reading plan for the church throughout the year that many church traditions use. Haven does not generally use it, but especially for the season of Advent, I think it can be helpful to engage it because it reminds us, the lectionary is an opportunity to remember that we are connected to a bigger tradition that's much broader than our little Haven community. And and that there's theological wisdom in that tradition for us to draw from. So with a nod to that, we'll be engaging some of these lectionary texts, albeit in our own way. Traditionally, the lectionary includes four scripture readings a week. We won't be looking at all four texts each week, but our teachers will choose the ones that feel most relevant for our particular Haven community in this 2020 journey we're inviting you on. So with all that in mind, let's get started. The place we're gonna start our journey today is with two texts that come to us from the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament, as some say. And as you'll see, similar to the place we find ourselves in, both of these writings come from challenging seasons in the history of God's people. The first reading is an excerpt of Psalm 80. Now, while Psalms are often difficult to date, most scholars believe that this particular one was written about the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Just a little history reminder. You might remember from our exile series this past summer that the people of Israel in like kind of the latter part of uh, the Hebrew Bible suffer a series of devastating events. They have a national schism that causes the dividing of their nation into two separate kingdoms, given the names Israel and Judah, And then the northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by Assyria and their people were wiped out or assimilated into into the Assyrian Empire. Over a century later, the southern kingdom of Judah then fell to Babylon and most of Judah's inhabitants that weren't killed were taken to live there in exile. So, this psalm comes around the fall of that first northern kingdom to Assyria. And as you can hear in the psalmist's words, It was a pretty desperate time. Picking up with verse 1. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. So this is a psalm of lament, a tradition we reflected on a fair amount this summer. Remember that lament allows people of faith to give voice to what they're feeling, to speak the truth of their distress, and to bring that distress to God. This particular lament is a communal one. It's intended to, to be a part of the community's practice and of worship life, their prayer and worship life. So as a psalm, it's likely musical. It seems to be intended to be sung by a worshiping community together. And the song uses vivid imagery to speak of the desolation the people feel. They call God their shepherd, using this ancient metaphor for leadership of God, one leading a flock of sheep. But in this season, being led by the divine feels really hard. They say the shepherd has fed them with the bread of tears, made them drink bowlfuls of tears. What should be nourishing to them feels full of sorrow. But the people don't only name their sorrow. They don't only name their heartbreak. Again and again, they move from their complaints to a repeating refrain as the community sings out together, Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. With these words, it's like the community has experienced heartbreaking, significant ways, but they're turning to the divine and asking God to smile on them. The psalmist believes that there is something in God's face turning towards them that will bring warmth and restoration and healing. The other Hebrew Bible text that the lectionary highlights for today is another lament. This one is found in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 64. As you may remember from this season's uh, series on the exile, Isaiah was a prophetic text written over centuries. So the first portion is believed to have come from us from the historic prophet named Isaiah. um, And he was in a time and location close to where our psalm emerged from, the the northern kingdom, before it fell to Assyria. But later in the exile, the scholars in the exile took took those words of Isaiah, and, and they heard God speaking new things, and they added to the words of Isaiah. They, they, they added on to the book to what would become uh, known as, to scholars as Second Isaiah. But then finally, the last chapters of the book, the, these chapters that, that are today's lectionary passage comes through, comes from, seem to come from a third period in time, after some of the people have returned from exile. They've gone back to Jerusalem. This is third Isaiah. Though returning from exile itself seems like it would be a good thing, that also was a season that had its own difficulties. Those who returned from exile, most of them were the children or grandchildren of those who had been taken to Babylon. So returning to Jerusalem for them was fulfilling a dream of their ancestors perhaps, but it was a foreign experience for those who returned and they came to a land in rubble. Plus the returning community also needed to find ways to reintegrate with their Jewish relatives who'd grown up in Judah, because you see a small segment had actually stayed behind in Judah and lived in the ruins there. And now their children and grandchildren were being called to integrate with those who came from Babylon. And over all this interpersonal drama hung the shadow of the new empire that now had authority over all of them, the Persians. The Persian emperor had released those exiles in Babylon to go back to their initial homeland, but he hadn't given them independence. They were now a territory of the Persian empire. So the whole reality was complicated. And from that complicated place, Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Here again, we encounter a prophet speaking words on behalf of the community of God, a community that has suffered and that is trying to find its way forward. And for this prophet, this prophetic voice, the way forward is also through lament, speaking the truth of what is felt by the community and calling upon God to move. So what do these passages have in common? What do they point us to? How might they reveal to us the first step in our journey to joy? What do they even have to do with Christmas? For me, these passages both speak together a powerful reminder of where the journey of faith the journey of advent must begin it begins perhaps with this simple invitation look up look up today i suggest that's our first step in the advent journey in the midst of sorrow in the pain of disappointment when we find ourselves circling in cynicism and moving from depression to despair, the journey to joy begins with putting down the phone or the computer. It's a call away from doom scrolling. Doom scrolling by necessity means looking down right, down into the digital chasm. But these writers, speaking from very difficult seasons of their own, when spiraling in grief would have been totally understandable, they're calling us to something different. To looking up. What do I mean by that? I don't mean pretending the hard is not there. Clearly these laments don't do that. They name the pain of the present pretty clearly. They express it. They give it voice. But they don't do so alone. They are not alone in their grief. They are inviting the maker of the universe, the one beyond their present circumstances, the sacred heart outside of the turmoil of the day to attend to their suffering and bring change, bring healing, bring deliverance. Both of these texts feature voices that are not allowing the desolation of their present experiences to be the place they make ultimate meaning. The psalmist and the prophet are putting their experiences into a bigger context. They're bringing those experiences into dialogue with their understanding of the divine and inviting this God to be the one they've believed them to be before. Each of the writers names their history with God. They recall how they've seen the divine show up in ways that are different than what they're experiencing now. The psalmist does this by naming some of the historic leaders, leaders who have now given uh, their own identity to the names of the groups of people, in their part of Israel. They're naming how they've seen the divine show up for those people in the past, Joseph, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. The writer of Third Isaiah does this in their own way. He keeps speaking of like those miraculous times that God has intervened on behalf, on their behalf before recalling images that would resonate like the the, the that God moving to deliver the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery, parting the Red Sea before them, coming to Moses in fire and smoke on a mountaintop. But those texts do more than just recall history. They're also affirming qualities of God's character that the writer believes they've experienced. And they are calling God to affirm again. God as a shepherd, one who cares for the flock. God as a good parent, God as a heroic rescuer, God as, as a potter, carefully tending the ceramic creation they're making. In both of these texts, we're reminded that lament is a subversive act of hope. Lament is a subversive act of hope of hope. It names the suffering, and then it calls upon God to do something better. In so doing, it embodies the hope that God can, and God will. I believe there's a powerful wisdom behind this tradition that begins the Advent season with poetry like this. This wisdom shows us that what we celebrate on December 25th, the experience of God coming to us, embodied in the birth of a human child, that doesn't begin with tree trimming, and it doesn't begin with angels or shepherds or magi. It doesn't even begin with a miraculous pregnancy. The journey to joy that is the heart of Advent starts here in the laments of the lonely. It starts in the cries of the brokenhearted. It starts with the desolate calling on the divine to bring change. It starts with those who looked up. I don't know about you, but I find this to be a profoundly helpful message right now. Locating the origin of Christmas and the starting place of the Advent journey here in Lament, that brings dignity to all the places I have felt lonely and grieving at the end of this challenging year. Last weekend, we had a Sunday off from our Sunday service with our pastoral staff, Jeannie, Katie, myself. We took some time to connect through the weekend with a, a sort of staff retreat, mostly through Zoom. Our intention was to connect in a deeper way about the impact of the year on each of us and on our Haven community, and then begin the process of discerning where we go from here. And as we took time and made space to reflect, to to think back to the year we thought we were gonna have versus the year we did, I recognized in a deeper way than I think I'd allowed myself to really acknowledge thus far, how much I've been grieving. I spent time looking at all the hopes I'd had for our community this year. The things that I personally, along with some of you, have been working on for years that I thought were finally going to come to fruition in 2020. I was so full of optimism. I had to recognize the disappointment I feel with how many of those things have been shelved. I found myself in touch with the challenges of parenting in this time. How impossible and unfair it has felt for Jason and I to try to be our kids' everything. Not just their parents, but their teachers, their only in-person friends, their therapists, all at the same time, and for months on end, and without really any good tools for how to do any of those things. I grieve for all the ways my kids are hurting, that I can see, and the ones I can't see. I grieve for the ways that I haven't been enough for them. I worry about the long-term impact of this on them. I also felt the sorrow I feel not having time with my extended family this year, particularly my sister. As anyone who's living with or loving someone with a long-term chronic health concern, time together can feel precious in a different way. And losing time together takes on greater weight. And of course, these are only the griefs I feel for my own little personal reality. That doesn't even speak to the weight of sadness that is like really too much to comprehend that I feel when I think of the hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost and the incalculable sorrow so many have experienced this year. It's beyond comprehension. So this past weekend, I took the time to sit in those places of sorrow and loss and to invite these trusted friends into them with me. And then from that place of truth-telling, acknowledging that grief before them and before God, we also took time in various ways to look up. One of these that I found the most helpful came when we engaged a prayer experience rooted in memory. The prayer model, which some of you know, is called Emmanuel Prayer, referencing that name given to God, and particularly the person of Jesus, that means God with us. It's an affirmation that in all things, the divine is present. And so sometimes we, we can see that by looking back and asking God where God has been present to us. This model of prayer invites you to recall a time you felt close to God. For me, the memory that first came to mind was the ordination that folks here in the Haven community held for me last fall at our Haven retreat. This prayer model invites you to notice sensations and engage the senses of that memory. So I felt that cool, crisp fall air in the little chapel we held the ceremony in. I remember the light shining in colors through the stained glass windows, how it fell, on the various friends who were gathered there. And then it was time to sit with the question of, how was God present to me in that time? What was the divine doing? This question invites us to allow our memory and our imagination to be a place within which God can speak. As we allow the spirit to reveal new insights to us upon the landscape of our memory. So as I asked that question, where were you, Emmanuel, that day? How were you present to me? I saw in my mind's eye, there in the chapel, God figured as a pregnant mother with a large pregnant stomach, putting her hand on me. I sensed that she was blessing my ministry as a ministry of spiritual motherhood, giving me a mother's blessing in my vocation as a pastor. This, of course, was a profoundly comforting image to see and experience. And while I appreciated that God was showing me her presence as a mother blessing my spiritual motherhood, I also found myself curious about her present state in that picture. Why are you pregnant? I found myself asking her, why are you pregnant in that picture? The words that came to my mind rung clear and true. Because I am always pregnant, the Divine Mother said. I am always pregnant, in that moment of truth, something wrong in a deep place in my heart that I needed to hear, that the one who has made me, who has made all things, she is always birthing something new. She is ever pregnant, ever filled with possibility and promise. Looking up and seeing God in this way as a pregnant mother was profoundly moving and hopeful to me. It reminded me that even in my disappointment and grief, I am held and nurtured by my divine mother who always has the new within her ready to come forth. She has brought new life forward before. She is pregnant with it still. This is the hope of Advent. That life is not defined by what is, but by what can be. Our hope is a divine heart at the center of the universe who enters whatever our present is and points us to possibility and potential. No, looking up, glimpsing that potential, that is not the whole journey. In Advent, we still have a month of waiting before we experience the arrival of God breaking in. The people of Israel who prayed the laments we looked at today, they had centuries of waiting before Christ arrived and brought the deliverance they sought in a real way. And surely in many ways, our whole creation is still waiting for the hope of redemption to be fulfilled. But this practice of looking up, it starts us on the journey toward Christmas joy. It reminds us we have a journey to take. It invites us to put on our sojourning shoes and start walking. So as we end, I just want to invite you to consider how might you look up this Advent? I'd like to encourage you to engage that question this season, particularly this first week as we start our Advent journey. What might looking up mean for you? How might you spend time reflecting on where your heart is now and inviting God into that space? For some of us looking up might mean time journaling. It might mean writing our own laments cries to god to come and break into our present reality we might want to try contemplative prayer practices like a manual prayer that i just named or centering prayer or breath prayer i'll be putting some resources on that in our new advent channel on slack so plug to check that out um, if that's something you want to try looking up might mean finding a friend to process and pray with it might mean reading the advent book using that as a jumping off place for your own reflection even it could be listening to a favorite traditional christmas carol allowing that to give voice to your own hopes and concerns this advent season whatever speaks to you i encourage you to find a way this week to set some time apart to look away from the news to put down the phone Slow down from whatever busyness you might be filling your days with. And just be quiet. Be real. And look up toward the one who you're waiting for to bring forth something new. May we all find this way, a way this season to pray with the psalmist and all our ancestors who've sung through the ages. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Amen.